there. My name's Gail, and uh, I'm a member of the church here in Cumbria, in Cockermouth. And I've been asked to speak to you today about a person who I've had the privilege of meeting a couple of times and hearing speak. And amazingly, I was able to go abroad and visit the work that she was doing amongst the poor. And somebody I really respect and have learned so much from and continue to be inspired by. So by telling you a little bit of her story, I hope that you will uh, be inspired too. And I want to tell you today about a person, a place and a passion. And it's a story of uh, a, a woman who was born in 1944 in London and it was just a very regular household, very regular upbringing. Her did what kids do. She had a twin sister. She wasn't from a Christian household. Her parents weren't Christians. But at a young age, she found herself being confirmed in the Anglican Church. When you go and kneel before the bishop and the bishop lays his hands on your head and prays for you. And when she got up from this, she went back to her seat and found that she had to get a program and try and hide her face because she was giggling and she didn't want to get into trouble for giggling and the amazing thing is that as an adult she looks back on that experience and recognizing it as one of her early encounters with God and as she grew up she had a passion for music and she was very good at music and she enrolled at the Royal College of Music that is pretty good I would have to say and actually graduated from there, uh, specialising in the oboe. She was interested in God, but she didn't really like him and didn't really know too much about him. And, and she'd been partying hard one night and was on the train uh, the following morning when she bumped into some friends who probably were thinking, well, you look a bit rough, and also thinking, you need Jesus. Uh, but invited her to a Bible study where they were going to talk about God and the Bible, but also there were some nice looking men going to be there. So she was like, OK, I, I'll go. And really, through a period of time, they led her to Jesus. And then she started spending time with Jesus. And he would say to her when she asked him things, go. And she would be like, well, go where? And she would have a dream. It would say go or a vision or something or scripture. And it would say, go, go, go. And she'd go where? And there was no answer. And she didn't know what to do with herself. And so eventually she went to a vicar to get some advice. And she told him, you know, every time I hear God, he says, go, but I don't know where. So how can I go? And she said, do you know what? We're at a stalemate. So... I'm going to stay here and I'm going to come and help you. And the vicar uh, amazingly said to her, if God's saying go, you need to go. And then it was the same answer. But I don't know where I'm going. And he said, you need to go. And what you need to do is you need to buy yourself a boat ticket that uh, stops as many countries as you can find and then when God speaks, you get off. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine one of our church leaders saying that to one of our young people today? She was 22 at the time, 21, 22 at the time, and saying, do you know what? Just get a boat ticket. 
stops in lots of places and get off when you hear God. And she looks back on that and it, it could look horribly irresponsible, but she absolutely knows that it was a word of God. And um, so this was back in 1966. And do you know what? I looked up uh, cruises today and to cruise from Southampton, you have to go to Southampton, Portugal, Italy, Egypt, Jordan, Oman, Dubai, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, China, before you get to Hong Kong. And it made me think, as a 22-year-old with a one-way ticket in 1966, what would it be like? I'd probably get on and I'd be really excited at the thrill of this adventure. And then we'd go to Portugal and it would get sunny and it would get warm and I'd be walking around the deck and praying. And then we'd go to Italy and I'm going, God, is it here? And silence. And Egypt, is it here? No. And then a few days at sea and beginning to think, oh, God, are we sure about this? Have I heard you right? And then a few more days at sea, what on earth have I got myself in, into? And then finally, the word comes. They dock in Hong Kong about a month after setting off. And God says, this is it. And many of you will already have realized that the person I'm talking about is Jackie Pullinger. And this is her story. It's a true story. And even when she got to uh, immigration in Hong Kong, it, it wasn't all easy, easy sailing. Pardon the pun. <laughs> um, she gets off the boat and immigration says, so, Miss um, Pullinger, who are you traveling with? Well, I'm on my own. And where are you going to? Um, I don't know. Uh, What's the address of the place you're staying? I don't have anywhere to stay at the minute. And who do you know here? Well, I don't know anybody here. And how much money do you have in order to look after yourself for the time that you're here? Um, eight pounds. And where's your return ticket? I mean, it was just a disaster if you look at it from a human perspective. And the immigration was basically saying, get yourself back on the boat you're not stopping I think and then she suddenly remembered that she had some distant relative who happened to be uh, in the police force in Hong Kong and that was what opened the doors for her to uh, arrive in the country let alone do anything while she was there so that's a little bit about the person when it comes to the place uh, I th I've thought about this uh, long and hard really and I thought Having read what I've read and seen what I've seen of her uh, videos and different things, it would be very difficult for me to adequately describe uh, the place that she was working. And so I found a video clip and I just want to show you a few minutes about where she was working. And this is with her giving the commentary um, about these places. So just take a few minutes to watch this. I arrived with about eight pounds, but I thought I was very rich. And two things I think I knew. One was that God had promised to look after me. And the other was that you should work wherever you can. 
So I looked around Hong Kong to see what there was to be done and was really overwhelmed. And I think lots of people are when they come to a place like Hong Kong or India or nowadays London or, or California, if their eyes are open, that is, because once you begin to see needs, they are not ending. And so I looked at all these needs and said, well, God, where do I start? Because I could spend a whole life in one street. And uh, at the end of my life, I could just about have begun to love one street. But, um, you know, you walk out of one and into another. So I knew it was important, maybe not to understand the whole thing, but to do my bit. And that turned out to be Wall City. With the surrounding squatter area, the population grew to an estimated 50 or 60,000 people, served only by four standpipes. Pirated electricity through open wiring, open sewers where enormous rats, cockroaches, flourished amongst children, emaciated cats, dogs, pigs and chicken. Brothels with blind, mental, and child prostitutes, illegal dentists, and doctors with thriving abortion practices. 14K controlled all the prostitutes and the opium dens, which there were 32 of. Between them, they paid an enormous amount of protection money, something like 100,000 Hong Kong dollars a day, to the police, who weren't supposed to be here, but nevertheless were quite involved in the business protection for all shopkeepers, uh, gambling dens, blue film theatres. Right at the beginning was the little children that took me around the streets because I taught in a school. And they used to take me a different way and I used to make them lead me out a different way each time and nobody minded because I was with the children. And that's how I got to know the drug dens and gradually to find out that uh, Gogo and the 14K were in fact controlling the whole place. <laughs> Through uh, lots of little lanes, hardly connected, you find your way to the actual door or one of the old gates of the walled city. Um, and then you go into real blackness because that's where all the houses are built uh, on top of one another and no light ever got down. when you see that level of poverty and particularly when you see it in person for the first time it's very shocking isn't it to see people living with open drains and sewers and what film and video can never do is tell you about the smell you can't experience the smell but you could see you know the open sewer so that would that would have reeked of awful things and I've I've heard her say that you, you never looked up because people would throw things down onto the floor, which would seep down the, the levels. And so you never looked up because you didn't know. And so the smell and the noise, I'm sure it was probably a very noisy place with all sorts going on and battles and knives and fights, as well as everyday life and drugs and, and the smell of the, the drug dens and just quite remarkable um 
I know when I was there, the walled city uh, was no longer uh, accessible. It, it, everybody had been moved out, but they had a hangfoot camp, which was um, not far from there. And for dinner, uh, you had big round tables and they were tin tables on some sort of base. And when you eat there, it's very rude to put your fingers in your mouth. And so if you, and you obviously have chopsticks, not knives and forks. So if you have a bone in your mouth, a chicken bone or fish bone or whatever, you had to spit it onto the table next to you. <laughs> My honest to God prayer was, God, please don't let me throw up on the table. Um, but then after dinner, you just lifted the tin top, tin tabletop off, which was huge, a bunch of you sitting around it take it over to the open drain, get a hose pipe and just hose the whole thing down into the drain. And just a remarkable thing to see. And so it was just a very shocking, very, it just arrested all your senses really sort of place. And that's the sort of place it was. But into that, when the addicts came to her and they met Jesus, and they came off the drugs, um, they would go back and they would want to tell their friends about it. And what would happen is their friends from before would say, how did you get fat? We won't go to that. Anyway, how would you get, how do you get fat? And he would say, well, Jesus made me fat. Would you like to meet Jesus? Well, yes, I would like to meet Jesus because the only way you can get fat is by getting off the drugs and getting control back of your body. So, well, if you'd like to meet Jesus, come to the walled city and we'll go to a meeting and I'll introduce you. And, and that's what they did. And they'd walk into these meetings and there was worship going on. And even if you were an addict, you were expected to reach out to those beside you and pray and see what God did. And the team would be watching the people coming in and seeing if they were responding to God and open to change. And if they their reason for being there, was it a genuine, I want to change and I'm desperate, or was it, I've been sent here by my probation officer to avoid going to jail? And then if they were found to be serious and genuine, they were taken to um, houses which were in the middle of nowhere, you know, sometimes on an island or just really miles away in the middle of nowhere. And somebody would be with that addict 24 hours a day for the first 10 days. And they would be prayed over. And because by this time they've given their lives to Jesus and they're speaking in tongues, they would speak in tongues themselves and their helpers. And the miraculous thing was that very few actually had side effects. Mostly they slept through the whole episode. The, the going cold turkey, as you would call it. And you would expect somebody coming off heroin to be vomiting and muscle cramps and all sorts of discomfort. But basically, most of the time, um, it was sleep. And what would happen is they would, their room would be made into a room of worship. It would be made to look very lovely. And, and the brothers, as they called each other once they'd... Um, come to Jesus would look after them and worship in their room and pray for them and they would have whatever they wanted and the actual detox took 72 hours but it was all just giving them 10 days before they would begun to be introduced and reintroduced to the program 
and uh, the activities of the household. And these stories that I'm telling you are stories that come, I know a couple of people who've lived out there for a number of years, and so they're first-hand accounts of what was going on there. And so that's the person of Jackie Pullinger. That's the place, Hong Kong, and how she ran um, St. Stephen's Society, as it's called. But the passion, worship is key. And it's about singing love songs to Jesus. It's, it's about getting filled up on Jesus. It's about talking less and not giving so much advice. But let's worship the Lord and see what the Lord says. It's about encouraging the addicts to read the Bible. And so before they were taught, they were expected to read the Bible themselves. And there was an absolute expectation. When you read the Bible, God will speak to you. So you will read the Bible and then you will tell us and we will tell you what, you know, God's telling us. And, and just just a solid expectation of faith, a, a, just an amazing understanding of how Holy Spirit works. There wasn't much counselling going on because she would say that Western cultures are so dependent upon words and you know, if you want to become a Christian, you must share the gospel, A, B, C. But actually, in their culture, in Eastern culture, it's more about they are far more connected to religious things and spirit things. So actually, they don't need words first. They need an encounter first. And that is what they would pray for. And it reminded me of a verse that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I'm not sure that those three things, heart, soul, and mind, are, you know, completely separate, compartmentalized. But it was very interesting to me that Jesus said those words, and he spoke of the heart first, and the soul, and the mind was last in those three things. And... I just, it, it's challenged me that am I too wordy? Am I too word orientated? And should should I, in a balanced way, you know, come to God more saying, God, I want to encounter you. And then we'll look at words. And it's about the Holy Spirit doing um, a spiritual work. And I want you to hear words from Jackie herself uh, from an interview that was done by David Stroud, one of our New Frontiers churches in London. And she speaks about um, the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is a spiritual language that God gives to us when we are filled with his Holy Spirit, baptized in his Holy Spirit. So that's just to explain that. She says these words, this was last year this interview took place, she says these words at the age of 76, which I don't know about you, but for me, once you hear them, you'll uh, realise why I am so challenged by that. And, and I'm quite a bit younger than she is. So if you are 70 plus, don't even consider disqualifying, disqualifying yourself. Um, bear in mind that when she said this, she was 76. So I'm going to hand you over to to Jackie and to David. I think um, the scripture says, by what you've said and done, and then by power of signs and wonders. And today people want to shortcut the doing. 
And they, if I could just have enough Holy Spirit, you know, everybody would come to the Lord or fall down or get saved or whatever. Um, but it's, the, it's doing that shows them who Jesus is and gives you permission to do the miracle. So, you know, I remember after I was called to, to, to bind up somebody after he'd been hit, hurt in a gang fight. And I said, oh, you, you, you have to go to the police who was full of blood. And he said, um, no, I can't because they'd arrest me, which is true. And so I bound him up very badly because there's no water there. And I remember praying, Lord, they're impressed because when they've got a problem, they come to me. That's great. Um, and one of them had said, uh, She's cracked about Jesus. But apart from that, she's okay. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's, that's great. They're impressed. Um, they call me, but they're not changed. So that was when I began to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, because I said, unless there's a change um, it, in the life of somebody whose mother's a prostitute and father's a drug addict, unless there's a change, he's going to die before he's lived. And that, so on one hand, I, I, I am, I was, I will be, very happy to go on seeing no no results. It, it's worth it in Jesus' name anyway. On the other hand, I'm very impatient, which is proper, um, because if the Lord doesn't break through, and if if I if I don't become sensitive somehow to how He wants to make that breakthrough, people will die. Uh, this is not a you know. I'm going to start a little group and preach forever. I, 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 I really want Jesus to heal the old woman whose back is bent and the, 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 the child who's been um, bashed all his life and hit um, and, and for him to be able to be healed physically and to lift his head and know that the Lord says he's worth the, everything. Golly, it's challenging, isn't it, that um, we are powerless, but we know the one who has the power and we so need to be filled with his spirit. And to illustrate this, I want to tell you a story of one of the helpers in Hong Kong and an experience they had of being asked to take 25 of the brothers out somewhere along with another helper. And while they were out, the 25 brothers decided to have a bit of fun and they thought, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to run off, do our own thing, go and get drunk, go and have some cigarettes and um, do what we like for a bit. <clears throat> and this helper went back to the camp feeling dejected and awful and a failure. And the brothers came back, you know, quite gloating and quite happy with themselves. And it was this helper's turn to lead the worship. So she went to Jackie and said, Jackie, I don't feel in a position to lead worship. I don't want to do it. And Jackie said, go and lead worship. You're on the road to get it done. So, um, so this helper sat down and with the notebook and another worship uh, leader person and got the songs out and the chords and started strumming and cried. Couldn't sing, 
because they were crying and crying and crying and crying and just didn't know what to do with themselves and they were angry and frustrated and God and whatever was going on. And this went on for quite a while and the other person took over the worship leading. And then this helper, after a while, uh, lifted their gaze and saw that the brothers who she'd taken were actually in tears as well, on their knees, in tears before God, in repentance and encountering him. And that's a hugely humbling and moving story of us being so weak and unable and yet God. And I guess that's my challenge and my application, if you like, you know, thinking about the words in, of Jesus uh, that Luke wrote in Acts, when it says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. And we need to be those who wait, who wait on God, who wait to connect with God. It's not a passive waiting of, I'm just going to sit here and, and, and wait for an experience. I'm just going to sit here and see what happens. No, I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait. And I'm going to wait proactively, applying my mind to the words of scripture I'm reading or li listening to, or apply my mind to imagine the words that are in the worship song. And I'm going to wait until I've connected with the living God through his Holy Spirit. And if we will do that, we will be changed. And if we will do that, we will be world changers, wherever you're called. We're not all called to go to the ends of the earth. We're called to the school gate. We're called to the workplace. We're called um, to the club. We're called wherever we are. That's where we're called to. You know the people you connect with. You know what they need. And and it's that. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Love your neighbour as yourself and be filled with the spirit and uh, able to give out. So we've looked at a person. We've looked at a place. We've looked at a passion. And I just want to pray for us as we finish that God will provoke us to wait and connect more with him that we might be more empowered to reach out to the people he's put us amongst. Father, would you come upon us by your Holy Spirit? Would you come and fill us right now? Would you help me to be good at learning to wait for you, not passively, but applying my mind, quietening my spirit, waiting until I've connected with you. Help me to connect with you and engage with you by your spirit more and more and more. So come fill us, come baptise us. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.